Welcome to Translating Aging, a podcast about how the science of human longevity is transforming the way we treat disease. In each episode, we bring you conversations with the researchers, entrepreneurs, and investors who are working at the vanguard of the field. Translating Aging is produced by BioAge, a clinical stage biotechnology company developing therapies to extend healthy lifespan by targeting the molecular causes of aging. I'm Chris Patil, VP of Media at BioAge. Today, I'm very happy to host Celine Haliwa, founder and CEO of Loyal, a San Francisco-based startup that's seeking to treat the underlying causes of aging in dogs. Loyal has raised $11 million in seed funding so far and is planning to start clinical trials of its medications in 2022 and 2023. Celine, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, happy to be here. So let's jump right into the science. Loyal's mission statement is giving our best friends more time. How do you plan to achieve that? It's actually a pretty similar kind of biologic problem as to working in people. It's just a different target. Fundamentally, we're developing various drug products that are targeting various conserved mechanisms by which dogs age to try to give them healthier years. And specifically, our first two products are looking at one of the underlying reasons as hypothesized why smallest dogs like a chihuahua can live you know, 18 or more years, while Great Danes on average will live seven to eight years. And this is actually conserved across dog size. So the larger a dog is, on average, the shorter that breed's median lifespan. And that's abnormal. We don't see a 2x lifespan differential in humans, for example, or really any other species. And then also looking at ways to pharmacologically improve metabolic resiliency and fitness in aged animals to give them a longer, healthier lifespan. What's unusual about lifespan in larger dogs? Uniquely in dogs, and kind of really interestingly in dogs, there's actually a 2x differential in lifespan within the species. So it's actually a consequence of historical inbreeding of dogs that was selecting for certain phenotypes like size that basically looks to have created almost a genetic disorder for aging in these dogs. So there's more than one way to make a big dog, but it sounds like all of the ways to make dogs big shorten their lifespan. So the way to think about it is like kind of how people would have done it back then, right? So obviously there was no understanding of genetics, no understanding of the reasons why inbreeding was bad, um, as we also saw in like royal families from back then, for example. It was really more they were selecting for a phenotype and they were selecting for specifically dogs in puberty grew quickly and became larger faster. And they would often would breed then dogs that were hit this phenotype successfully together, even if they were very genetically close. And that's kind of how you get this like genetic simplification around dog size. I see. And the reason why it's conserved from dogs to different breeds is basically because it's a very fundamental mechanism by which dogs grow. So if you're selecting for a dog that grows faster, larger in puberty, even if you're doing that independently across different desired breeds, it still converges on the same mechanism. I see. So I know that sometimes you have to play your mechanisms pretty close to the vest when you have a drug in development. Can you tell us anything about how the drug is going to work? The drug that we're developing is hoping to compensate for the accidental genetic disease that we gave these dogs that causes them to become larger, which to be clear, we're not the dog smaller, but that causes them to age faster after they're fully grown. That would be a pretty neat trick, actually, if you can make the dog smaller at the same time. So what's the status of that program in terms of uh, upcoming clinical trials? So we have a drug product we've shown health span biomarker efficacy and preliminary health span efficacy in dogs. And it will be entering clinical studies and companion animals in 2022 or 2023. Okay, fantastic. So in parallel to your clinical development, you're also running an observational study called the health span study to track aging markers in dogs. Could you tell us something about how that study is going to be structured? So we are basically doing a cross-sectional observational. That means no drug, no intervention study, looking at large and small, old and young dogs. And the idea of this study is basically to correlate various aging biomarkers of interest for our drug programs and also just of interest in general 
to various dog sizes, breeds, and conditions. How will the data that you get from that study inform the clinical programs at Loyal? So again, they're correlational data, which you guys know very well. Everything correlates with age because everything correlates with time. But of course, better understanding. Very few people have looked at aging markers in dogs. So better understanding some of the markers and the biomarkers that we hypothesize are relevant to the mechanisms that we're targeting in dogs is clearly, from a correlational standpoint, helpful in developing our drug programs. So is that study running locally in a particular geographic location? So we're running it across the U.S. with partner veterinary clinics. Now, I'm at a hazard to guess that you're not short of volunteers, but how's the recruitment process going? (laughs) So the most difficult part in any aging study, and especially what we have to deal with, is that obviously you need to have birth records to be able to tell if a dog is a certain age or not. So that's kind of the biggest burden or a kind of rate limiting step in recruiting dogs for a clinical study, but it's going fine. We're um, almost fully recruited at this point. Great. So is the study still open or are you still soliciting volunteers? It is still open, yes. Okay. Well, maybe we can put a link to the recruitment page in our show notes for this episode so that if any listeners happen to be interested in participating, perhaps they could write you an email and see if there's still availability. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. I would imagine that owners are pretty enthusiastic about working with their dogs and with you to learn about canine lifespan. Tell me about the interactions you've had with owners so far. There's kind of different flavors of dog owners, but in general, people love their dogs. They see their dogs as family. They see their dogs as their furry children in some ways. And kind of the big downside of dogs and definitely with these giant breed dogs, I mean, these owners are very cognizant of, is that they have such a shorter lifespan than we do. Actually, when I first started working on Loyal, I came from the aging biology side. I'm a huge animal lover, but I wouldn't start another animal company necessarily. The reason why I started getting convinced that there was actually a market here, there's no obvious market comparator because there is no aging drug approved, was because there was actually these forums of Great Dane owners who would basically just talk about how much they love the breed, they love the temperament, they love everything about the dogs, but they just couldn't take the heartbreak of another one dying so early. It's not like the dogs just, you know, die at you know, seven or eight. They become sicker sooner also. So they are aged from five years or six years. Any opportunity or offer of hope of spending more time with your pet has been received, honestly, like more positively than I thought it would be. I assumed there would be some controversy and there really has not been any so far. Knock on wood. That's really wonderful because within the broader field of aging biotechnology, just cocktail party conversation, you end up hearing a lot of objections from people who say things like, I wouldn't want to live much longer than the normal human lifespan, or won't that just mean I'll be sicker for longer? And then, of course, we can explain to them about the concept of health span rather than just adding years to life. We're going to add life to years. It's nice that you haven't been struggling with the same level of resistance on the canine side of the business. Yeah. So this is a thesis that Matt Caberline of University of Washington Dog Aging Project had initially, which is totally genius and something that we're wanting to build upon, which is that you can actually socialize a thesis of aging drugs, lifespan extension, healthspan extension more cleanly and more easily with dogs because it isn't inherently controversial. Like your dog living a longer, healthier life, nobody really fights against that versus like in the human side, immediately kind of gets conflated with 10 other different problems. That's definitely like a meta goal of loyal and something that I hope to, if we are successful, I hope we also assist Cable Lion and the rest of the aging community in achieving. I've never heard that argument before, and it's very compelling. I mean, as you point out, dogs are much shorter lived than us. And so there is this way in which when you bring a dog into your life, you break your own heart in advance because you know, as a sunk cost, that in 15 years, 17, if you're very, very lucky, you'll be parted from them. It seems very intuitively clear to me 
that if we could do anything to extend their lifespans, we could. And the other thing that you said that resonated with me is we made them this way. It's our intervention in their genetics that causes them, especially the larger breeds, to have shorter lives. So it's sort of our obligation to help them as much as we can. And it's not just large dog, short lifespan. Actually, most breeds have a genetic predisposition for some sort of disease. So for example, you know, golden retrievers largely die of cancer. And that's just a obviously completely accidental a genetic consequence of their historical inbreeding for the phenotype of a golden. We also were interested in working and are working on problems like that too, because as you say, it's unfair that we have the technology. We can theoretically fix or compensate for or dampen the effects of historical inbreeding. And if we have the ability, we should. I think we have the responsibility to do that. You said that different breeds have characteristic ways in which they age. Does that mean that it's a challenge to find mechanisms of aging that are very broadly applicable across all breeds of companion dogs or e.g. across all large breeds of dogs? So we're only going after evolutionary conserved mechanisms of aging for that exact reason. For dogs especially, but also just in general, kind of niche or orphan indications or orphan drugs are just difficult to develop and difficult to commercialize and transparently make, you know, venture scale revenue often, which is important when you're trying to fund doing work like this. So the mechanisms that we're targeting well conserved. So for example, caloric restriction, I believe is one of the first ever interventions that was shown to extend lifespan in a complex species. And it's also been demonstrated to extend lifespan in dogs. So Purina ran a really cool study in the 90s where they calorically restricted Labradors and showed a 25% lifespan extension, an approximate two-year delay of cancer, and also delay of osteoarthritis. And caloric restriction, as you know, extends lifespan across almost every model or definitely every model organism we have. And in some correlational data and metabolic fitness in people. And so targeting a drug that basically emulates that should be broadly applicable across all breeds because it's so conserved from a kind of core genotype. I want to go back to something that you mentioned earlier. You brought up Professor Matt Caberline, who's one of the co-directors of the Dog Aging Project up in Seattle. He's a scientific advisor for Loyal, and the goals of your health span study are quite closely aligned with those of the Dog Aging Project, which is just for our listeners who aren't familiar an initiative aimed at identifying the biological and lifestyle factors that maximize canine longevity. So I just want to do a little compare and contrast. How will those two efforts complement each other? So the Dog Aging Project, to be clear, is way larger than our healthspan studies. Our healthspan studies end of 500. Dog Aging Project, I believe, has more 60,000 dogs enrolled in it. Wow. And they're also doing longitudinal data. Yeah. <laughs> so they're following the same dog over time. And it depends kind of on what portion of the study, but in general, they'll ask you to fill out kind of household things that kind of answer questions about your dog and its environment over time. And then the idea, obviously, is to correlate that with how the dog does or doesn't behave and become over time. In comparison, the HealthSpan study is a static study. So it's a one vet visit study where we're looking at biomarkers and it's cross-sectional. So we're not comparing one dog to itself over time. We're comparing one dog or a certain size and certain age to another dog of a certain size or a certain age. Again, which is why it's correlational. I see. And that's why you need those birth records of the dog, because you need to be very sure about the chronological age of the dog in order to draw conclusions. For this study, yeah. Right, for this study, exactly. You spoke a little bit about LOY001, which is the drug that's targeting specific problems in large breeds. Are there other drugs in your pipeline that you're excited about? 
Our first drug loy one is specifically indicated for large and giant breed dogs and extending their lifespan and health span and intervening while the dog is healthy. Obviously, there are dogs that are already old and dogs of all sizes and all shapes, and we wanted to have something available potentially for those dog owners also. So our second product, Loy 2, is being developed explicitly for dogs of any size who already have shown signs of aging. And that's the one that we're developing that's targeting metabolic fitness and resiliency. Again, kind of a pharmacologic emulator, I guess you could say, of caloric restriction. Is there anything about this drug that makes it specific to canines? I know that listeners will be interested in that. Should we see a health span or lifespan extension with Loy2 in these dogs, I would hypothesize that we would also see a similar effect in people. It's not canine specific. Again, caloric restriction is one of the most fundamental kind of aging interventions there is. So it's really the question is more, how do you emulate that with a drug, because obviously people don't really want to calorically restrict themselves or calorically restrict their dog. (laughs) I think the dogs in particular would not want to be calorically restricted. I don't think they'd respond very well to that. Wolfie would be very displeased. I know. We can't let Wolfie go hungry. (laughs) She's a good girl. Exactly. So what's the status of that clinical program? So this one is also clinical stage. We'll be entering clinical studies a little bit earlier, probably mid to late 2022. Fantastic. And I guess one of the things that we haven't touched on yet is we're talking about clinical trials and an approval process. Do veterinary drugs need to be approved by the FDA in the same way as drugs for humans? Yes, yes. Yeah. So there is a veterinary FDA, it's vet, FDA CVM Centers of Veterinary Medicine. A common misconception that is inaccurate is that there's a lower bar for vet med. There actually isn't. It's just a little bit different structure. So fundamentally, you do your phase one safety study and phase two preliminary efficacy study actually in laboratory animals, or you can do it in laboratory animals, and then you go to phase three and companion animals. So you and I both love dogs, as I'm sure many of our listeners do. And I think we'd agree that giving dogs extra years of healthy lifespan is a valid goal in and of itself. That is to say, if all that Loyal ever achieved was to increase the health span of companion dogs, that would be more than enough justification for the project. But I want to ask you about some of the broader ramifications of your work. And we touched on this a little bit in our discussion of caloric restriction. Is there a reason to believe that some longevity drugs in dogs could benefit humans down the road? Totally. It's commonly accepted in the field that dogs are one of the best models, if not potentially the best model of human aging, age-related diseases. And the reason why is multifactorial. They've shared an environment as we co-evolved with dogs. I mean, there's no other species that we've had such a close relationship over the last tens of thousands of years as we have with dogs. And it's especially important in aging because environmental factors play into many aging phenotypes. And they also develop age-related diseases over time like we do and develop approximately the same age-related diseases at approximately the same point in their life as we do. Really the only exception being vascular diseases like cardiac disease because dogs don't eat McDonald's every day, for example. I bet they'd like to, but they certainly shouldn't. (laughs) They definitely should not. I gave Wolfie a little bit of my breakfast this morning, so maybe I'm a bit, a bit of a hypocrite. <laughs> Basically, the cool thing about dogs is that unlike a mouse model where often you induce the age-related disease in the mouse is, this is a little bit of simplification, but basically the mouse might be healthy and then you induce the disease and the next day you have like some phenotypic emulation of whatever disease you're trying to go after, let's say Parkinson's, right? A dog actually develops diseases like that over time over years and years, which is how people develop it. And so fundamentally, when you're trying to develop a drug that's targeting the mechanisms by which we age, which is what what we're doing, what you're doing, you want to have it in an animal that also has developed age-related diseases over time. Anything that we can make 
work in dogs will be eminently valuable to understanding it in people. The most important thing is that we can see if it works or not much, much faster. I see. A dog just has a much shorter lifespan. That feedback loop is still long in general, but way shorter than it is in people. I see. So it's not that the trials are done any less carefully, or even that the trials for an individual indication would take any less time in a dog. You're saying that because dogs have a shorter lifespan than we do, if longevity-based drugs are efficacious in drugs, we could see whether they have an effect on lifespan much more rapidly in an animal with a 15-year lifespan than in an animal with an 80-year lifespan. Do I have that right? Exactly. Think about it as compression in general. Like you can see age-related decline in a dog in six months. In six months, you don't see anything in people. It might be two years as the approximate equivalent in a human. I see. So it's just way faster and way easier to iterate when you have that faster feedback loop, which is really important because the big thing that everybody in the aging field is getting stuck on is we've extended mouse lifespan a million times, and that's great, but it's very, very helpful. But we need to make that clinical leap. And to do that, it sounds like you would argue we need a better model that's more closely matched to us behaviorally and in terms of its lifestyle and an animal that, you know, does have a longer lifespan than a mouse, but a much shorter lifespan than human beings. Yeah, 100%. I kind of see what I'm doing as facilitatory of obviously our work, but also just the aging field in general. Like I really want to help kind of bridge the gap between drugs that might be health span or lifespan extenders in people and have a way to definitively show or at least add to the evidence that they actually are doing that. Right. Because again, if you go human first, it's just going to be very hard to actually prove that in a period of time that like transparently is relevant to a patent lifespan, for example. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. An excellent point that I think I hadn't been thinking in those terms, but that's it's really important to point that out. We've talked about the motivations and the scientific foundation of Loyal, and I'd kind of like to move the conversation now in the direction of talking about the company itself. So Loyal has raised $11 million worth of seed funding, which is impressive in absolute terms. And it's also one of the largest ever seed rounds for a woman solo founder. So before I ask you more questions, I just want to say congratulations. Well done. Thank you. Thank you. In order to do good science and develop promising drugs, however, you need money, but you also need a great idea. So We've talked about our love of dogs. We've talked about the scientific motivations here, but how was the idea of Loyal born? Like, how did you go from somebody who was not going to found a dog-related Asian company to somebody who did? <laughs> yeah, so to give a little bit of context, I'm not like one of those founders who's like, yeah, I had a lemonade stand, I was selling X, Y, and Z thing when I was 10 years old. <laughs> I didn't know what a VC was until I was 22, I think, or 23. And I've generally, I only read the PG essays like a couple of years ago. I really didn't grow up in the space. I never had the intention to start a company. Really, my thing from basically when I was 18 was how to develop better medicines for the worst diseases. And the worst diseases that I have always focused on and been most interested in were age-related diseases. And specifically, I was very interested in neurogenerative disorders for a long time. So that kind of brought me on this winding path. I did an undergrad in neuroscience. I started a PhD at Oxford in economics of gene therapy. I was interested in the economics of preventative medicine. I basically came to the conclusion that acute treatment is obviously very important, obviously something that we need to work on, but even harder biological problem than prevention is for these complex age-related diseases. So I was curious how you could economically incentivize preventative medicine and TLDR. It's very difficult. (laughs) And then I started working at Laura Deming's Longevity Fund, which is an early stage venture capital fund investing in companies developing drugs for aging and age-related diseases. I basically got frustrated while at Longevity Fund because the pitch of every company was very similar. It was, you know, we have this drug or this mechanism, extends lifespan in mice, like, wow, amazing. 
but you know, slide five, oh no, FDA is evil, aging's not an indication. So we're gonna develop it for like X, Y, and Z, like esoteric indication. It just like didn't make sense to me. It felt like a missing puzzle piece that people were not able to develop a drug explicitly for aging or for health span or for lifespan as an endpoint. And I became really fascinated and how to do that in general. And I came to the conclusion, student people, you need basically a billion dollars, which unfortunately I don't have. And I want to asterisk and be clear, I think there's a lot of really interesting ways that other people have now worked around this problem too. Uh, I don't think my solution is the only one. So like, for example, some of the indications that you guys are looking at immune aging, especially I think is a super clever aging indication. Well, thank you. But I kind of like, I always, I really wanted to work in aging actually. In another life or maybe a later company, I'll work on immune aging. But I felt very strongly that my goal was to explicitly develop a drug for health span extension and lifespan extension. Figured it was not possible to do it in people with kind of the, the accumulation of variables that were available to me, but you know, eminently possible in dogs for the reasons that we just discussed. And I just kind of became obsessed with that idea. Honestly, I became obsessed with developing a drug to extend dog lifespan, both to help dogs, but also to prove a point. It's really fundamentally what I'm trying to do is like prove a point to the broader population, to medical community, to the drug development community that yes, like pharmacological interventions to extend lifespan and health span are incredibly viable and worthy of investment. And I think to do that, we need to have a shocking demonstration of efficacy, which again, I think we can get there quicker, more efficiently. It was like somewhat everything in bio is high risk, but hopefully somewhat lower risk than human via dogs first. Okay, I want to drill down on something that you said, which is that you were swimming against the current. You'd identified a similarity of approach of other longevity-oriented companies, and you saw basically that there was a big, unattended opportunity in the space, and you wanted to pursue that. So when you're swimming against the current, you often encounter resistance. I'm kind of belaboring this metaphor, (laughs) but it's still working. So what I want to ask you is, did you encounter any skepticism about that canine focus? If everyone else is, you know, I'm going to treat disease X in humans by secretly treating the underlying mechanism of aging, and you're saying, I want to treat aging in dogs more or less directly and prove that it's possible, did you encounter skepticism? Totally. We've encountered skepticism in basically every vertice. We've encountered skepticism because I'm a mid-20s solo female founder building a biotech company, which your amazing CEO also breaks the mold, but in general, it's like quite rare. In bio, we got skepticism on the idea that dog lifespan could be extended. We had skepticism that even if we had a drug that would do it, you know, the kind of regulatory and the operational and the societal barriers would not be a problem for us too. And I wanted to run the experiment. And it's not the easiest problem in the world, but it's definitely a very worthwhile problem and experiment to run. So it, it was not very discouraging. <laughs> I mean, yeah, nobody ever said building a company is easy. And you just mentioned, and you've been outspoken on social media about the unique challenges that confront young founders and women founders. So I'd actually like to invite you to say more about that and tell us what sort of obstacles you encountered that were particular to the demographic issues and how you've navigated that terrain. It's really interesting. It's made some aspects of company building. And I'm curious if you guys have experienced this too. At least we've found like some aspects of it easier and some aspects of it more difficult. I'll focus on kind of the easier first. Like I think definitely being different can be helpful for kind of cutting across the noise. And then specifically for recruiting, I mean, we've built a really amazing team. And at last count, we we're about 70% female. And one of the reasons we're able to recruit really good people is because I can like very demonstrably show that we're at least thinking about startup culture and building a biotech company and biotech culture differently. 
And there's a lot of people who work at Loyal have previously worked in situations that were kind of optimal in those ways. And I can at least promise to them. I can't promise to be like build the perfect culture and be the perfect CEO. I'm, you know, still learning, of course, but I can at least promise that I am thinking about it and that I'm not going to default into a certain path that like previously has given them a very hard time. And I think also for some women who join, like maybe I can like mentor or kind of be helpful in pushing them further, farther and be cognizant of kind of some of the variable differences you need to think about when you hire women. So that's like been a positive. It's really helped us build a really amazing team. I think on the constructive criticism side, the <laughs> <laughs> I think the most frustrating part is there's often an assumption of competency that a founder of a certain ilk will have that I've often not received. And I usually have to battle to show that I'm competent. And to be clear, you mean older and male founders? Yeah, especially in biopharma. And I think when I walk into a room, it's not necessarily an assumption of competency. And I've definitely also felt a requirement of almost like perfection to not pattern to what they assume, which is like not being as competent. If I like phrase a sentence wrong, I'll often get nailed on it versus another founder would just be like kind of given credit for like, oh, he's still learning. Well, it'd be unfair to insist that you not only identify this problem, but also solve it. I'm curious to know how you've addressed that challenge as it arises in your interactions as you build the company. And there's like, there's like a few standard patterns that people fall into. Like I'm very careful with how I word things because it's very easy, especially as a female founder, to get labeled as like cocky or overconfident. So... I'm much more conservative in my language than I might naturally be. And like I'm very careful in kind of how I phrase things to ensure I don't pattern in that way. Another like common one is like kind of a <laughs> this uh, this really frustrated me last year. I obviously get like the Elizabeth Holmes thing all the time. So I don't obviously ever kind of address it head on, but I address it subconsciously. Celine, just for our listeners who may not have followed that story carefully, could you just elaborate a little bit about what you mean by the Elizabeth Holmes thing? So Elizabeth Holmes, you buy them, kind of a series of really famous flameouts of female-led, ambitious biotech, biopharma companies. And it's almost been made into movies and things. <laughs> so you're saying that on top of the kind of sexist assumptions that sometimes confront you, strictly on demographic grounds, when you walk into a room, there's this kind of meta story within biotech about ambitious female founders who have failed. And you feel like you're having to carry that around and confront that on top of everything else that you're doing to build a company. Yeah. I mean, think about it, right? Like that was an embarrassment and nobody wants to fund the next person who does that. And I think in other fields where they can do diligence, it's not an issue, right? But like very few people can actually like adequately diligence what we're doing. You kind of have to just believe me and believe in the story or, you know, do a PhD <laughs> and then they can diligence it, right? Uh-huh. And so there's always kind of this like worry or fear that like legit, I don't really know. I don't have a way of knowing. And so the kind of the way I've learned is like kind of subconsciously compromised for things. Like, so for example, we do a lot of our research with actually third-party CROs. Very common. Very common. I'll drop that in. We don't have a lab where we could fake things, <laughs> really. <laughs> and this, we do not pay the CROs enough to be motivated to fake things on our behalf. <laughs> so I'll put like the signed CRO data packages, like little things like that. They're just like kind of, we'll give that competence, like that confidence without, you know, having to acutely address it. I have never thought of a CRO as fraud insurance, but it's an amazing concept. Thank you so much for introducing that idea to me. 
thank you so much for going into that. I mean, it's certainly not comfortable to experience those kinds of forces working against you. And as I said, no one's ever said that building a company is easy. And it's, it just seems unfair that you have to confront these negative forces on top of everything else that's required to build a business. I will say that one place where it seems like Loyal is doing really well is in the press. You've been covered extensively by pretty prominent publications. And one of the things I noticed is that you're often referred to as a Silicon Valley company. So granted that you're based in the Bay Area, but what do you think about that classification? I think, I mean, I must be a Silicon Valley company. I mean, there's a ton of meta goals that I have. One of them is setting a pattern of a, a positive example. I mean, there's many positive examples, but let's say like a positive and loud example of a female founder building something very technical. It's also more deep tech and bio companies being built in Silicon Valley. I think the founder first mentality, the founder friendly mentality, the supportive mentality that you have here is very unique. It's especially unique in biotech. And more companies being built that are working on drug development is only beneficial, really. (laughs) So hell yeah, we're a Silicon Valley company. And I hope there's many more behind us. Awesome. So it sounds like you really feel like it's a help to think of the company as a tech company. I think so. Maybe it doesn't help us with the East Coast biotech VCs, but they're not going to invest anyhow. So. <laughs> All right. So what's next for Loyal in terms of funding, growth, and future directions? Essentially, what I want to know is what does success look like over the next year? Over the next year? Two years. Gosh. I think success over the next two years. So when you get a drug approved, there's kind of three things you need to do. You need to show safety, manufacturing, and efficacy. And over the next two years, we will basically know if we're going to have the data to support those packages and we'll have run done the work to support those packages. So that's a very kind of like simplified way of describing a ton of work that's going to occur over the next years. Um, I also want to grow the team. I think kind of one of our biggest issues is we're kind of always understaffed. The more team bandwidth we have, the more aging hypotheses that we can run in parallel. So growing the team, getting really good at running these aging studies, also this ideating how to hell to run an aging study. Like, people haven't done this before. We were asking a lot of questions for the first time. And it just takes a lot of time and effort to think through every variable. And you want to do it right because these studies are very long. So if you're wrong, you'll leave. it's shorter than human, but still is a few years until you get that feedback loop. Yeah, that's really kind of the big things. I think on a more meta level, we're also going to build up like the consumer side of the company more. I have a whole other hypothesis that we've not really gotten into today, but basically... The idea of building a consumer-focused, consumer-first pharmaceutical company. So a company that COVID's kind of helped with this, but in general, the average population has a pharma has a very low NPS score, which is actually pretty tragic. Basically, people don't have very positive emotions or feelings towards pharmaceutical companies, which is understandable on some variables, but also disappointing because I think we want people to be excited about spending time and you know, potentially putting their career in working on developing new medicines. It's, in my opinion, one of the most important things to spend your life on because health is fundamental to everything else. Agreed. So I'm really interested about the opportunity of building a pharma company that people love, that is consumer-focused, that's friendly, and gets people kind of excited about drug development medicine the way they might be excited about you know, space. I think it's totally possible. I just think, honestly, like the personalities that develop medicines are not inherently good at consumer communication which we also saw during the pandemic. <laughs> so that's like kind of the other half of the company that I want to build out this year. I see. And that's going to be a project over the coming year. So it sounds like in a year or so, we're going to come back and talk to you again. And uh, you can tell us all about that. As we move toward our conclusion, is there a question that you wish media would ask you? 
that I didn't ask you today that you'd like to answer? Oh, interesting. Is there a message that you feel like isn't getting across because people don't think to ask you the right question? I think the aging field is going to be larger than the oncology space in 10 or 15 years. I think a lot of people think of aging today as like the aging bet or like the aging company or whatever. But it's actually, if you think about it, aging encompasses probably the majority of cancers plus neurodegenerative disorders, plus sarcopenia, osteoarthritis, all these other diseases, right? We have God knows how many cancer companies today. I think we'll be very similar for aging. I think it's pretty inherently obvious people working in the field. I think it's like very non-obvious people who are not working in the field, but it's really important when you're thinking about spending time in this area. We're in the earliest of early days for this field. I think the biggest challenge the aging field is going to have is a vulnerability to false fails. So a company that might have a correct thesis, but maybe the drug or their tool is wrong or their clinical trial is designed badly might be conflated with the aging thesis being correct or that form of the aging thesis being incorrect. I think it's, the aging field is still more vulnerable to that because it's not taken as like a canonical truth yet that aging can be drugged. And we're starting to see a little bit of that blowback in the senolytic field, for sure. There was a high-profile clinical trial failure last year, and people were announcing the funeral of the senolytic hypothesis, which I think is very premature. And going back to something you said earlier in the conversation, nothing succeeds like success. And I think having a big win in the same way that we, we're vulnerable to false fails, we can benefit from actual successes, like all out of proportion, even to their size. And one of the things that are just a really strong selling point of oil is you've argued that you could be the company that provides that first big win. And that once there's one, all of these doubts become less of a big deal because people can always go back and point to it and say, well, you know, Loyal did it for dogs. This particular human trial might have failed, but that only means we need to try again with a different molecule or with a different approach. It's not the hypothesis that's wrong. 100%. I do mean it when I say that. I really just kind of see what we're doing as facilitatory to everybody else. And my like biggest stressor is honestly that because I think it's fundamentally, we have an execution risk. We obviously have bio risk, but we're able to kind of uniquely distribute that out because it's not that expensive to develop dog drugs. We can do a lot of things in parallel. It's really more how well do we execute and how well do I, as a leader, execute on building the first dog aging drugs. And if we can pull it off, it'll help everybody else. That feeling of um, almost a community effort, I think is really common in the aging pharma space. The idea that we're all, we're all pioneers. We're in the field early before what I agree will be massive growth. And we're all part of the rising tide that's going to lift all of the boats. There's going to be failures along the way. There's going to be companies that don't make it. But in the end, because of this false fail risk that you mentioned, individual successes are everyone's success because it increases the thinkability and the reasonability of the idea of intervention in the aging process. And I think that'll help facilitate investment and facilitate approvals. It's a very exciting time for that reason. It gives this sector a bit of a different tone than the rest of the biotech industry, I feel, because there is this kind of strong fellow feeling among people from different companies. By and large, and I, I'm monologuing here, which I'm not supposed to do as an interviewer, but what you said resonated with me so strongly. Let me frame this in the form of a question. Have you found that people from other companies in the aging space feel more like competitors or more like colleagues? Definitely colleagues. I don't consider anybody a competitor. And even if they were working on the same thing, I still wouldn't really see it that way. It's just 
honestly, every company that's legitimate that works on aging is only kind of more helpful. <laughs> it makes my life a little bit easier to prove that it's a valid thing to work on. I'm like BioAge being clinical stage and having raised lots of money from legitimate sources has been incredibly helpful as a validating signal for the rest of the field. And also just like at a more meta level, I think if you are working on drug development and working on human health, you just can't, I don't know, I don't know if ethically you can, it would be unethical for me to wish for another company to fail because that's going to cause a certain population subset to have a worse life or a shorter life or a less healthy life. So, I mean, we all win if we develop better medicines and that's kind of where it's supposed to go. And obviously, like, I want to be one of the people who helps do that. If we failed and it facilitated somebody else to succeed, that's still a very worthy goal. That's a really beautifully compassionate way to think about this process. So before we part company, one of the things we want to do at Translating Aging is close each conversation with a couple of thematic questions that aren't specific to our guest, but are relevant to the overall field of longevity science. So the first one is, you come from the longevity side of this. You worked at Longevity Fund before you founded Loyal. You have a grounding in this. And I wanted to ask what topic in longevity science that you're not working on do you find the most compelling? I really think it's the translational aspect. I'm really interested on how you design clinical trials. And it's basically Restore Bio, which did the mTOR1 antagonist, not Rapalog, Rapalog for respiratory tract infection that had a phase two success and phase three failure, like that whole area and problem and mechanism, I think was very, very interesting. I want to see somebody try that again. I don't know if you talked with her, but basically there was like some implication that it was a maybe a false fail right. or a fail that was caused in part by a change in the clinical endpoint. From what I understand, the phase two endpoint was a kind of quantitative objective metric and the phase three endpoint was patient reported. Yeah, we would really like to talk to Joan Menick about that, actually. She's uh, on our short list of people that we're going to reach out to for a conversation. And I agree. It's of great concern that potentially a very promising medication has fallen by the wayside, hopefully only temporarily, because of what may simply be a design issue. Yep. I think that you've identified a really important issue in the field that it's sort of no one person's responsibility to work on. but as a field, we need to solve this problem. We need to figure out a way, I don't know what metaphor I want to use, to harvest the fallen fruit, to make sure that valuable things don't get swept by the wayside because their one and only one chance didn't quite work out the way that we thought it should. Yeah, 100%. Maybe to like pull it back to what we were talking about earlier with like some of the female founder stuff and how I, I feel like there's an expectation of perfection. I, I think there's also an expectation of perfection in the age right now there's much less tolerance for failure because nobody has a pattern for an aging company. Nobody's made a billion dollars of an aging company because nobody is 100% certain if this is a legitimate problem area to work on. Or not nobody, but on average, people are not 100% certain this is a legitimate area to work in. So therefore, the bar is so much higher. I mean, again, it's like I'm really excited by some of the people who are like have decided to spend their lives working on this problem, but it's, um, it's a heavy burden to bear. Thank you for that excellent answer. It's very thought-provoking. The second thematic question I wanted to ask you is, where do you think the field overall will be in, let's say, five to 10 years? I think all the big pharmas will be working on aging in five to 10 years. Honestly, you could make yourself a pretty good exit by starting an aging company, recruiting a good team, doing something like not totally terrible for the next five years, and then getting acquired as all the companies have this like aging space race. <laughs> Not even kidding about that. Like, I think that's totally going to occur. This is like kind of pharma behavior. One big pharma gets into it and then all the other farmers are like, oh shit, me too. And it's just like much faster to buy groups. 
Yeah, I didn't think you were kidding. It's such a funny insight. <laughs> I really enjoyed that answer a lot. We've talked about what your work at Loyal means scientifically and from the standpoint of success in the vet pharma sector and even its potential ramifications for human beings. I just wanted to give you a chance to tell us, like, what does it mean to you personally? I feel like my only job is to help develop better medicines. So it means everything to me because I think it's the most important problem to work on. And given who I am and the variables and the factors at my control, that this was the best way for me to work on that problem. It means everything. I'll always work on this problem. This will be the problem I work on for the rest of my life. Not necessarily specifically dog aging, but, you know, developing drugs for aging and age-related diseases is... I, I don't see myself doing anything else. That sounds like a really nice vocation for the rest of your life. <laughs> Celine, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. This was fun. Many thanks as well to our listeners and subscribers. If you have feedback or suggestions for future episodes of Translating Aging, you can contact us by email at podcast at bioagelabs.com or on Twitter at bioagepodcast. You can also follow our sponsor, BioH Labs, on Twitter and LinkedIn. We'll see you next time.